use your active event PFAS and the green transition. How can we strike a balance? My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euractive studios at the heart of the EU quarter. So first question, what are PFAS? PFAS are organic compounds containing fluoride that don't degrade in the environment. And for that reason, they're sometimes referred to as forever chemicals. There are thousands of different types of PFAS with a range of consumer and industrial uses. Now, as part of the EU's zero pollution ambition, which is a key commitment of the European Green Deal, the EU's chemical strategy aims to phase out the use of PFAS in the EU unless their use is essential. The EU is planning to ban around 10,000 PFAS substances. However, many industry stakeholders argue that this potential ban makes no differentiation between different types of substance groups of PFAS, and they warn that banning all of them could affect certain technologies, such as those needed to reach climate neutrality and thus the green transition. They also argue that this regulatory approach jeopardizes entire production processes in machinery and plant engineering, particularly new technologies in the energy transition. On the other hand, campaigners warn that these PFAS substances can be extremely risky, both to the environment and to human health, and that if exemptions are going to be granted, they must be done extremely selectively and extremely carefully, and they're wary that industry is asking for exemptions that are too numerous and too broad. So today, we're going to be talking about the scientific foundation for the new ban, its potential impacts, and what scope there is for a differentiation in the classification of PFAS. What are the risks of PFAS? How can they be averted? And where should the EU draw the line between risk and utility? To discuss these issues today, we're lucky to be joined by a very distinguished group of panelists here joining us virtually this morning. Let me introduce them to you now. We have Martin Beekman, who is the Policy Officer uh, for REACH at DG Grow in the European Commission. We have Kastutis Kupsis, Vice President of the Lithuanian Consumers Alliance. We have Dr. Jean-Luc Vitor, Deputy Policy Manager for Chemicals and Sustainable Production and Best Available Techniques at the NGO, the European Environmental Bureau. We have Professor Mark Buking, head of, head of the department Trace Analysis and Environmental Monitoring at the Fraunhofer Institute for Molecular Biology and Applied Ecology. And finally, we have Florian Henkel, lead global external affairs and government relations for fuel cell systems maker Cell Centric. Thank you all so much for joining us today. As you may have noticed, we do have a mantle on our hands here, an all-male panel. Uh, we did our best to have uh, not that not happen, but inevitably you get last-minute cancellations. So we apologize for the lack of gender diversity on this morning's panel. Now, you are going to be able to ask your questions via Slido. You can do that using the form that you see there 
next to the video player. You can go ahead and type your questions in now if you already have an idea what you would like to ask the panelists. Uh, you can slide that, uh, scan that hashtag that's just come up on your screen. I'll be seeing those come in as we go through the debate, and then I'll be putting your questions to the panelists toward the end of the panel. Again, you can go ahead and start typing in those questions now. So, Martin, let's start with you to, to hear a little bit more about what the Commission's plans are here. What has been the Commission's approach for this PFAS proposal? Sorry to interrupt. So apparently there is an audio problem. I can hear you, but I think the audience perhaps cannot. The audience can hear me. Um, maybe we'll try going to the next panelist just in case we can resolve it there, and we'll come back to you, Martin. Apologies for that. We'll get that sorted out on the technical end. Uh, Kestuchus, let's try you and see if the audio works there. Um, so, and then we'll come back to Martin. So, as I was mentioning at the beginning, there are concerns about human health and consumers and basically these, these chemicals that could be in the products that we're using, most people are unaware of them and yet they could be causing them quite serious harm. Um, so what are the concerns about PFAS regarding human health and consumers and what should be the regulatory, regulatory approach given those concerns? Uh, well, I, I hope you can hear me well. And uh, I expect that, ah, thanks. Good to see nodding heads. And uh, well, uh, the, uh, among the PFAS, among the substances we are talking about, uh, most are considered moderately to highly toxic. And I'm citing here a public publication from the environment, European Enviro Environment Agency. I think that's enough to get concerned. And for example, uh, talking about the consumer involvement or consumer concern, it's uh, pretty clear that uh, it's uh, it's quite quite important for consumers to avoid contact uh, or exposure to PFAS because, uh, if possible, we should use PFAS-free personal care products. Uh, for example, the 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 case with. Uh, with uh, cooking equipment is uh, quite well known and documented. And uh, of course, we have to avoid contact with uh, PFAS containing products. So that's how we uh, reduce exposure and potentially um, manage the risk or, or limit the risks. So if possible, consumers should 
get uh, uh, should use green labels uh, when making their their purchase uh, purchase they should choose brands free from PFAS and uh, that's from consumer point of view I think is a very prudent approach because you 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 don't want to expose yourself to a uh, to a unnecessary risk on the other side because we are here to discuss the, the the green transition and how the the PFAS dossier relates to the green transition I think the quite uh, clear relation is uh, in the fluorinated gases uh, sector we have refrigerants used in uh, many instances where we need uh, heating or cooling for example heat pumps we we all talk about repower eu plan we talk about um, millions of heat pumps to be installed in Euro in in europe in the in 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 the coming uh, decade or so and uh, we know the air conditioners need uh, fluorinated gases so the the committee i'm representing here in this discussion and i'm talking about the european economic and social committee which is a advice which is an advisory body in the eu architectural structure we developed an opinion on fluorinated gases which very clearly um, provides some uh, let's say um, uh, it, it clearly provides uh, concern that uh, uh, conversion to substances in the uh, fluorinated gases industry where there is a risk that some products will go out as PFAS should be avoided so we have to stick to the products which in the green transition help us also to stay environmentally safe not to play with risks related to to PFAS even in those sectors where the 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 need for for fluorinated gases is uh, is uh, still uh, let's say uh, still uh, persistent so this uh, this uh, th this whole debate about uh, some chemicals being uh, let's say risky and still we kind of need them for green transition is a little bit uh, let's say um, i think it's uh, we, in in other words we should not uh, use green transition as an argument to use substances which will then cause us other huge damages in our health and environment issues. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and this question of the F gases is probably one we'll come back to in the discussion because it's actually covered by a different piece of EU legislation, but it is a PFAS, so it's very much related to today's discussion, particularly when it comes to green technology. And as you mentioned, we'll be talking also about the more general question of whether or not substitutes are available for these types of applications. Martin, we're going to try again here. Uh, I think we have the issue fixed. So if, can you just speak for a second just so we can make sure that we can, in fact, hear you? Uh, good morning, uh, Dave. I hope you can hear me now. We're all good. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so see, sorry to up. interrupt you before. <laughs> um, if you could maybe, I think the audience couldn't hear you from the beginning. So maybe if you could start from the beginning, that would be great. Okay, I will start over from the beginning. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me for this panel debate. And I think you gave a very nice introduction to the topic, explaining PFAS and also uh, explaining that the Commission has taken action, uh, announced in the Chemical Strategy for Sustainability. And it was delivered by the Commission in 2020. So there we have a concrete PFAS 
staff working documents, uh, mentioning several actions on PFAS. Um, but also in the, the, before this chemical strategy, we already were working on several individual PFAS substances like PFOA, PFOS. They have been banned in Europe. Uh, and that's because we are aware of the environmental pollution by these substances. Uh, in 2020, the European Commission also gave uh, uh, ECHA, the, the, the commissioned ECHA, the European Chemicals Agency, to prepare a restriction dossier on the use of PFAS in firefighting foams, uh, because this is one of the applications of PFAS which are emitted to the environment and which we should avoid as much as possible. So in the meantime, ECHA has developed this dossier and also the scientific committees, the risk assessment committee and the socio-economic analysis committee developed its opinion. It has been recently sent back to the European Commission and now it's up to the Commission to prepare a proposal for that specific use of PFAS. So overall, I think the European Commission is taking quite some action on PFAS, also in other pieces of legislation, but I will only speak uh, on the REACH-related activities here. Uh, and of course, we are aware that five countries, uh, Germany, Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark and Norway, have submitted a very broad restriction proposal to this agency. On this file, I net cannot speak on the content. Uh, of course, we are following this file very carefully, but uh, it is really not at our table yet. It is now, it has been submitted by these countries. Uh, uh, a consultation has been done. Uh, that consultation period closed at the 25th of September of this year. And now it's up to these committees of ECHA to develop an opinion. So as said, we will follow that very carefully. And yeah, we're looking forward to receiving these opinions. Thank you. I hope <laughs> the sound was okay now. Yes, we've got you now loud and clear. And thank you also for walking us through where we are in this process. As you mentioned right now, this is sitting in Helsinki with the European Chemicals Agency, ECHA, and we're looking at this proposal that's come from a handful of countries with a quite broad uh, ban, and that's what has some in the industry a little spooked right now. We're going to talk more about that. But right now, let's go to Jean-Luc next. Jean-Luc, tell us, what are the concerns about PFAS regarding environmental impact specifically? And given those concerns, what do you think should be the regulatory approach here? concerns are too broad and too manifold. You can't hear me? Can you? We can hear you, yes. Okay, very good. Um, <clears throat> so the environmental concerns are definitely too broad and too manifold to be summarized in, in two or three minutes. Um, but indeed, some of the PFAS accumulate in living organisms in animals. Some others are found rather in plants. You find them in groundwater and ultimately, of course, that way in the ocean, in drinking water and in surface water. Um, what they all have in common is persistence, the fact that they don't uh, break down, and that is indeed the central argument of the restriction proposal that we now have at hand, the universal PFAS restriction. Um, it's important to note that this is not the first uh, restriction proposal, but it's probably the eighth one under reach. So there is in some way already a lot of experience and also a lot of uh, track record. In most of the cases, those restrictions actually were about dead chemicals, some chemicals that have anyway disappeared from the market, anyway it's nice and easy to uh, make a ban. Now in this case, of course, 
that is uh, different than if you were now to decide that you want to ban something that has disappeared for a long time, like typewriters. Um, <clears throat> we see also that in the past, it's not uh, been very easy to make things happen quickly. Um, but nevertheless, restriction is definitely the right tool um, in in reach. What other tool would there be uh, to do this in a logical and, and controlled way for a whole group of substances, um, even for a subgroup of substances um, like we have seen so far on PFA, uh, PFOA or PFHXA? Restriction is the only uh, tool that uh, can do, do this. And so it's, of course, uh, the, the, the best one. What is important also to notice now, of course, as Martin mentioned, the current, uh, the, the scientific committees of ECA, the one looking at the risks and the one looking at the uh, socioeconomic impacts are currently looking at the dossier and making their decisions, especially on what derogations should be given and which one should not. Um, because we all like black and white depictions, but this is clearly somewhere in between. What has been proposed is not a blanket ban, but a ban of all PFAS in a number of um, in a number of uh, applications, and there are quite a few derogations that have been proposed, uh, derogations with time lit limits or without time limits. Of course, one aspect that has been dropped in the meantime is essential uses. That is a bit of a, um, that, that, that's a shame because it would have given so much clarity, certainty, predictability to the whole process um, and it has a clear definition in the Montreal Protocol. The European Union is a party to the Montreal Protocol, so it even has uh, a legal value in that sense. That is currently not the case. We hope, nevertheless, that RAC and SEAC will go in the right direction and make a structured and sound uh, decision here um, and look very well for what alternatives exist and where there are alternatives, there shouldn't be derogations. Um, also, what was very well done is that there was a large consultation up front with a call for evidence and also discussions between uh, the member states who wrote the dossier and the industries to collect information on the different uses and where it would make sense to have a derogation. Yes, yeah, an interesting point about the essential uses and how that would have been a little clearer. We can come back to that in the discussion because I think it's an important point. Um, so, Mark, let's go to you next. What does the science tell us about PFAS? And in particular, what does the science tell us about their possible substitutes? So let, let me start um, to say that um, we are investigating here at our institute for the last 30 years. We know this PFAS is on the market for at least 50 or 60 years, and we are still um, not sure about all the substances uh, which we should look to, as they are more than 10,000 um, different substances in, in, in a lot of products. Um, so um, if we go to analytical chemistry, um, we always need some kind of standard component to evaluate, to analyze um, um, different PFAS components. And um, so nowadays about 100 of these standard components are available. Um, on the other hand, if you look into the price list of these standard components, you have to know that um, 
each of these components is a bit between 500 and 1,000, perhaps even more euro. So um, <clears throat> in terms of analyzing these uh, uh, components, it's not like um, um, as soon as possible. It, it takes a while also because you have completely to uh, remodelate your devices as they are also um, sometimes ceilings are coated with PFAS uh, chemicals or contaminated uh, with PFAS. So um, you have really to reconstruct your lab. So that's um, some internal challenge we have to face and we worked it out in the last 30 years. So that's, that's fine. But still um, we have more homework to do before we um, talk about um, new materials um, to replace PFAS. We still have this environmental issue. We still have um, PFAS in the soil, in the water, and it stays there forever, perhaps. And um, we talk about uh, non-extractable residues, which are, in fact, over time extractable. So um, we still measure PFAS in our samples. Uh, it's one of the PFAS was the highest concentration. So PFOS was banned in 2006, but still we find it back in our samples. Um, if we uh, go away from uh, analyzing these things, we still have to clean the environment. So remediation and things like this. So there are a lot of things going on in this community. And finally, um, internally at Fraunhofer, perhaps you know we have this 75, 76 institutes in Germany. A lot of material scientists are, are just in front of starting to um, work together with industry uh, to replace these things. But uh, we have a lot of applications. Some companies already started to uh, have um, um, company-owned solutions. So it's a matter of uh, IP negotiation, if we want, want to support industry, um, we have to learn more about the application so that um, a lot of things which are in the forefront of uh, offering solutions. And then, of course, just to say um, another phenomenon for us as a scientist, we talk about PFAS. We have a lot, we learned, we just heard we have consumer concerns. We have no solutions. We have environmental contamination. But uh, the sponsoring to go into science is, compared to other issues, quite low. So um, a lot of things which we do at our institute um, is financed by our basic funding and not by um, the public on a national or EU level or even by industry. So um, I think that will be, sorry to talk about money as a scientist, but this will be a major issue in the future to find the solutions. Thanks, Mark. Let's move on to Florian now. So Florian, tell us what impact would a blanket ban on PFAS have on your industry in particular? Dave probably, hopefully can hear me all. Uh, just gonna go yes. for a sound check. I can see Dave nodding. Thank you very much. Okay, probably as a quick introduction, yeah, thanks also very much for the invitation and the opportunity to contribute today here. Um, as a member of industry, we might offer you some probably more hands-on information um, uh, in contrast to what we've heard before. 
So just get, just gonna quickly tell you who we are. So my name is Florian Henkel. I'm the lead of external affairs at Cellcentric, and Cellcentric is a 50-50 joint venture of Volvo truck and Daimler truck. So as a rep representative from the industry here, so we are in the automotive industry, and we are doing trucks, but we are doing fuel cell trucks. Um, so we are part also of the upcoming new green industries. And as has been working here in fuel cells uh, for Cellcentric for more than 12 years. Uh, I probably can even contribute uh, to the topic technically a little bit if we talk about alternatives or what we should ban, what we should not ban, because actually I've been for the last five years, I've been the stack responsible here at fuel cells um, in cell centric and um, saying that probably probably switching over to some some comments on 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 what what people said before. Yes, fluor polymers are persistent and they have unique properties. That's the reason why we use these. Uh, uh, these uh, these substances for more than 50 to 60 years, as Mark rightfully said. And I want to say additionally that um, the industry, uh, in contrary to what you sometimes hear probably about it, uh, we are and we support uh, the control of the release of such substances into the environment. Uh, we are moms and dads here. We are fathers and we have sons and children. So uh, the industry is not just a gray block. We are also human beings. We are working here. And yes, if you look for pollution, and uh, bringing substances into the environment, we have to have some sort of controlled release of these substances, that's that's for sure. Um, probably moving over to green technologies or fuel cell electrolyzers. Actually, the industry is in a dilemma, I can tell you here, and it's very simple. Basically, for example, in fuel cells, PFARs are the functional element of the fuel cell itself. So the basically the membrane of the fuel cell. And if you take that one out, the fuel cell can't function anymore. So it's really, it's not, not something you have as an add-on or additionally, but it's really the functional element and in electrolysis, it's the same thing. So basically uh, we ban these substances, we will ban the entire industry of fuel cells and electrolyzers in Europe. That's something probably you have to remark. Second of all, if it comes to, uh, I heard from Jean-Luc, it's the eight approach for this one in REACH. Uh, we would agree with that, though we would disagree now we are trying to ban an entire group of substances. It's more than 10,000 substances we're going to ban and we're going to restrict. And this is probably relating a little bit to we're all banning oil, neither it be olive oil or <laughs> if it be motor oil. So what we ask for is take the industry as a partner. We're not an enemy. We are not an opponent. Take us in a, as a partner. Let's go for a balanced approach. Let's see what's really harmful. Let's see what the, the individual properties of the substances are, because some of them are more persistent, some of them are not. There are polymers of low concern, for example, which are not as persistent and they are biodegradable. And we really have to take a close look together with science, with the facts, like what substances are the harmful substances and what are substances we probably still want to use. Because, for example, in medical devices, they got an exemption, rightfully got an exemption, we need the persistency that these materials, for example, don't degrade in the human body. And if you have a heart attack and you want to have a stand, you probably don't want to have an operation a year uh, because the material is degrading. There is there's also good in these substances, and we have to carefully balance between the good and the bad of these substances, acknowledging reach and also acknowledging the Green Deal, not to get in a target conflict, saying, um, if we don't go, for example, for fuel cells and electrolyzers at the end, if we don't build up a hydrogen economy in Europe, 
we are in target conflict. The rest of the world will do it. And if we ban these substances, we will ban, for example, these two technologies entirely because we don't have alternatives. Thanks, Florian. Let's go back to this question of the essential uses and what could be exempted here. Now, Martin, we're here today discussing the implications for the green transition. So right now, and, and notwithstanding that you know the actual proposal is sitting with ECHA right now, what is the commission's thinking about how to determine what could be exempt here, whether or not essential uses should be the determining factor here, and whether or not a green technology would apply there. So if you're thinking about PFAS applications in electric vehicles, in heat pumps, in wind turbines, and solar panels, anything that's part of the clean tech that's going to be needed to meet the EU's uh, climate goals, what's the Commission's thinking right now about are, whether those are essential uses? Yes, so thank you for raising this question. Uh, and, and again, I would refer back to the, the ECHA assessment because um, the REACH uh, legislation clearly defines that we have to look for several elements. One is the risk, if there is a risk of these substances for either human health or the environment. Is it demonstrated? Is the measure taking away this risk? And on the other side, we also have to balance it, I think, obliges us to come up with a well-balanced approach to balance it with the economic impacts and that's including the availability of alternatives so the examples you give here i think we all want a green transition that's a clear clear go the question is is there in this application from dr henkel are there alternatives or not he is indicating there are not i'm not the technology i, I am not the expert here so I will wait for the outcome of the assessment because it will be specifically assessed by the CEA committee. Kastutis, uh, what's your view on the substitution factor for things that technologies that would be essential for the green transition? Do you do you think there are substitutes available, <laughs> and do you think this is a legitimate argument? Yeah, generally, uh, as uh, part of the team uh, writing an opinion on uh, fluorinated gases, uh, it was very clear for us that uh, in the whole uh, um, uh, heat pump and air conditioning uh, sector, we have multiple alternatives and uh, they are tested, they are already um, um, widely uh, applied and uh, essentially Europe in those technologies is a leader on a global scale and we export uh, our knowledge uh, to our uh, to other continents so um, actually a little uh, push out of the damaging uh, let's say uh, environment into back into a science lab and uh, creating a better product is also good for the industry because it gains a competitive advantage on a global scale so i cannot copy paste and uh, say the same is probably true for fuel cells or uh, any other um, uh, sectors. But what is very clear in heat pump debate, that we don't need to sacrifice our long-term environmental uh, stability and uh, human health in order to be on the forefront of the green transition when it comes to heating and cooling technologies. When you take propane, for example, as a refrigerant, 
it works in uh, many instances as well as those uh, uh, polluting gases so why would we use for, for 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 what reason would we then you know resort to environmentally damaging and also costly more costly uh, alternatives why is that because of some formula some patents some i don't know vested interests no we should definitely take a common good approach and uh, opt for a solution which is at the same time, not damaging uh, the environment and not uh, damaging our uh, pockets. So uh, in, in those heating, cooling segments, alternatives are available. And unfortunately, I cannot be, I, I would not pretend I'm expert on other green technologies and uh, I would leave uh, for others to, to contribute perhaps. Well, Kastritas, let me challenge you on the F-gases specifically, because while alternatives are available, I know that some in the sector argue that those alternatives may not be as efficient. So they could be less energy efficient, they could take up more space so that uh, a boiler using F-gases can have higher capacity than one using the substitutes. Can it sometimes be the case that while substitutes are available, they may not be preferable? They, they they might be uh, let's say sub segments in uh, in the in the overall heating and cooling segment where um, specific gases could be uh, necessary for some time because the technology is is developing quite fast but this is a uh, this is a, a process uh, with a moving target with uh, with uh, imminent uh, uh, target that uh, those polluting and uh, high greenhouse warming potential gases will be eliminated the industry will be pushed forward to find a solution and those th this is in the labs already so uh, i would agree with you indeed dave that uh, some efficiency concerns are here some sectors cannot find it very quickly and so on but when there is a solution you use that solution instead of using some kind of a medium intermediate solution, right? You 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 don't need to go to in in the heat pumps. You don't need to go to HFOs when you can go strict to the natural refrigerants, and uh, that is the path which is clearly visible overall the 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 F gases uh, use usage sectors. Jean-Luc, I know that you had some skepticism about whether concerned that the environmental arguments here could be used to extend the life of PFAS when they don't need to be extended. Do you agree that there are some applications for which there are not substitutes at the moment? And do you think that we should go ahead with the ban in order to stimulate the industry to develop substitutes? Or do we need to wait until substitutes are available? Well, <clears throat> for sure, the um, health restriction process is a restriction that takes time. And in the past, we have seen that whenever a restriction was announced, this was actually a driver for innovation. Um, because otherwise, very often, nothing happens. But with this restriction on the horizon, that will certainly um, inspire some people to work on, on alternatives. Um, I would therefore say yes it is important to go ahead and it's also important to let
Could I get confirmation that you heard me or not? Yes, okay, we are back online. Apologies for that. We lost the stream, but I think we are back now. I see all of you back with me. Let me just make sure we're streaming again. Okay, so if the audience is back, apologies for that. We lost the connection, uh, but we are back now. So, Jean-Luc, we did hear most of what you were saying. Uh, if you could just come where, in. To, to, to where should I rewind? Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, say again? Yep, you could just yeah, rewind a bit. Um, so, I, I was saying that in, in, indeed, so a restriction is always a driver for innovation. Um, if you only wait till um, everything is ready and then you come in with a restriction, as it is such a slow process, that will also uh, be very uh, ineffective. Maybe also to um, give the example of the proton exchange membranes in fuel cells, what is currently proposed is six and a half years as derogation uh, transition time. So that brings us probably to 2034 or something like that. Um, that could still become longer. For electrolyzers, it's not in the dossier. I don't know why. I don't know how the dossier uh submitters overlook this uh, or what the reason was that's uh, a matter of uh, speculation but definitely what is important is uh so the uh essential users concept as is generally accepted and that's the what is in the text of the montreal protocol um that looks at, at, at alternatives and alternatives means that you have to have something that does the same function if it, it doesn't have to make to have exactly the same performance because when you ask for exactly the same performance you will never get there that is what is called a drop in substitute and that never exists because something is always a bit weaker here a bit stronger there or just a bit different and um then if you immediately say no then of course uh, you just discard very good uh possibilities so what is needed here um is in the whole process in Rack and Sayak, we need to have high transparency on the reasonings that are made, on the decisions that are made, and those have to be based on evidence and on logic. Thanks, Jean-Luc. And again, to the audience, if you're just rejoining us, sorry, the stream dropped out for a second there, but we're glad you're all back here with us now. Florian, I know you wanted to respond to Jean-Luc. Can you hear me? Yes. Sounded clear. Thank you very much. So first of all, Jean-Luc, thanks for, for, for offering that. And I want to commend on Cassis. Um, it's very simple what you showed us, like with your fluorinated gases in a certain application. It needs differentiation, right? It's, it's complete, a different story between a fuel cell and a refrigerator. And for these two applications, we need just a differentiated approach. We can't handle them like, like with a universal band. That's, that's probably a good example showing that. For fuel cells, Jean-Luc, I, I would like to, to give you some, some technical details. In the VDMA in Germany, which is the association of the, uh, of the, of the manufacturers for machines and for, for equipment here uh, in fuel cells, there is 97 partners in there and there's all the big fuel cell companies in there, but also scientific institutes. And we did an internal assessment indeed. And what we found out there is two things. There is the point of view of science, what Mark was, was recognizing and saying, like, we need more invest in science because we want to do research on that one. By the way, on PFAS-free materials, P 
people are doing research since 20, 25 years. And I give you, I give you a good example for that one. Uh, by the way, people are doing that. And Mark, Mark will probably agree with that one. On the other hand, it's the, the side of the industry or the idea, do you have a ripe product you can integrate into something? And here we have to say, if you look, for example, on the matter of technology readiness levels, as you define it, for example, uh, if you want to go with a rocket to the moon by the NASA standard, um, the technology readiness levels of these materials, of these alternatives in fuel cell, it's probably one or two out of nine. So they are far, really far, far, far from being industrialized. And just to give you another example for the fluorinated version of PFAS, of membranes, it took 35 years of research until the year 2005, until we had the materials we have. Another fact, it's not about performance. In the truck, we are doing 25,000 hours of, of, of operation with these materials. And that's one of the reasons why we chose them with their particular uh, properties. If you now go for the alternatives, for example, they are not as durable as they are. And science tells us that they have run tests up to 2,000 hours of operation. So if you switch it back now to science, that would mean that we would integrate now in a six years time frame materials in the European Union in fuel cells who have a lifetime of 2,000 hours of operation. That's probably something you don't want to do. And the second thing is, for example, now a concrete example, hydrocarbons. Uh, some people are celebrating these materials. We are doing science on, on hydrocarbons in the industry ourselves for 25 years. And one thing or one problem they are facing is they have completely different properties, for example, in water management. If you look for water management, these membranes, if those membranes get dry, they get leaky and then you have internal leakages in hydrogen systems. And that's probably something you don't want to want, want to have. So it's not about performance. It's not about just tweaking a little bit on these material, but in fuel cells and also in electrolyzers, which basically, as you also commented, don't even have a timely restriction period. Um, these materials are heart and bone and core of the technology. And if we are, if we are not using these materials anymore in the European Union, then it's effectively, it's effectively a ban of these two technologies. That doesn't count for all technologies using PFAS, but for fuel cells and electrolyzers, that's the case. And also, if you go, for example, for wind energy, it's the same story. I don't know if everybody's aware that we really have a target conflict if we put up these, these regulations in place. We don't have green energy uh, sources in Europe anymore. I don't know if everybody's aware of that fact and probably should find some sort of balanced approach, a differentiated approach where we not ban an entire group, even if the cause and the meaning is well meant out of the reason of reach. Yes, don't pollute something with persistent material. We agree, though, please look for a differentiated approach. Jean-Luc, you wanted to respond? Yes, I um have i feel the urge to defend the european system uh, a bit here um, because it's not all doom and gloom we have a system that actually has two independent scientific committees has who, who will look at all of that information discuss all of that and if things are being depicted as now this will be banned by tomorrow and it's all very unfair i'll have to defend our european system um, there is not enough transparency in it. There is too much conflict of interest in it, but it has its value. And at the current moment, we're probably at least three years away until any, anything gets set in stone on this topic. 
um, we have a differentiated approach. This uh, dossier is has, um, I don't remember, 12 annexes with in total, I think, 2,000 pages or so. There is a wealth of information there. It is not perfect because perfection is not of this world. But there is a lot of differentiation there. This is not um, a stupid dossier in the sense that it would just look at everything in exactly the same way. Yes, it looks at all PFAS, but it has a lot of granularity on the different users, on different levels of performance, and of exactly all of such considerations. Well, I guess a lot of this will come down to the level of risk as it is assessed, and then a measurement of whether that risk uh, justifies a ban, particularly if they're going to go with a differentiated approach. Mark, how would you say a comprehensive scientific risk assessment can be carried out for the restricted substances? What do you think are the necessary ingredients there for a really comprehensive assessment? Yeah, just to say that my background, uh, by training, I'm a food chemist. So, and um, uh, coming back to the consumer side, um, I think that uh, as soon as I put chemicals on the floor, in, in, in contact with food, uh, people get crazy in, co uh, in contrast to microbiology, which is, by the way, much more harmful. But chemicals are always bad, and um, uh, people are afraid of everything, including disaccharides, which are, in fact, sugar. But th that's only one, one private comment on that. Uh, what we have seen in, in, in terms of PFAS in food is that in 2008, uh, uh, EFSA, the European Food Authority evaluated two of them, the two C8, which at that point of time were mostly used. Um, as I said, uh, PFOS was banned in 2006, uh, but still was still produced at that point of time in China. And so um, PFOS uh, were coming to town. And in 2020, EFSA uh, uh, evaluated four of them, including uh, uh, two. Um, to other PFAS, uh, which beside PFAS and P4A. So from my point of view, um, in, in terms of, of food chemistry, um, we just uh, tackled a couple of them, but most of them in terms of regulated toxic evaluation, uh, we still have a lot of things to do. The question, of course, is, as we know it from, from other uh, compound clusters can be transferred from known toxic risk of these four components to the other 10,000. Um, and that's a question which well, we are not able to answer. On the other hand, if we have to evaluate 10,000 plus X in terms of uh, the full toxic evaluation, um, well, we need some some more scientists on uh, this uh, area. So that, 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 that's really a tricky one. So, and um, just to support the European point of view, it, it, we, we have, still have to face a better safe than sorry approach in Europe. Well, we've had a lot of questions come in from the audience. So I'm gonna put some of those to our panelists now. Um, so the first question here from Martin. Um, so, uh, it's an interesting question. It's from Nicholas Robin or Robin. Uh, can we use existing EU legislation to manage PFAS rather than using a restriction 
which seems not proportionate or adequate. Um, so Martin, is, is this is a type of separate piece of legislation necessary here, or can this be done actually through existing EU legislation? Yeah, so I try to reflect on that. So maybe for the audience, good to know that uh, I know Nicholas Robin very well. He's uh, a director of the fluoropolymer uh, product plastic from Plastic Europe, the fluoropolymer group. So to give a bit of the background, which I think is fair to know. Um, yes, um, you can tackle pollution with other legislation, of course, as well. Uh, so we have the Industrial Emission Directive, where you cover emissions to the environment. But I would say also REACH is a that's the it's legislation which is in place, so it's nothing new. We have it. We had restriction before, and we have to face the proposal as it is prepared and submitted by the, the countries. And there, all peoples are considered, and there we have to see if there are needs for a derogation, whatever. Maybe also cool to mention here is that a restriction is not as said by Jean. Luke and also by Florian, it's not a blanket ban. It can be have derogations, but it also can have other types of measures. You can also apply other kinds of risk management measures in a restriction. It is not banning something or not banning. You can apply that you avoid emissions through the environment. You can say that uh, we had an example of an, a product solvent where we were concerned about the health risk for the workers. So you define a risk level a safe risk level. So there are all kinds of measures which you can put in place in a risk restriction. So I think, and I think that was iterated by several of the of the other one, other people on the panel, we have to come up with a well-balanced approach, taking into account the alternatives, the risk, appropriate measures, but also taking into account the way we want to go with the green transition, etc. Okay, so the next question is for Kestutis. This is from Nicholas Hunt. Um, I agree that this will push industry to find innovative solutions. However, developing new products that aren't harmful in another way will no doubt take longer to develop than the derogations would allow. How can a balance be struck to ensure present risks are not simply displaced? So do you agree, Kastutis, that the derogations wouldn't actually give enough time to develop alternatives? And what do you think is the right balance there? I would reiterate uh, what uh, Martin and uh, Jean-Luc previously say. I think that the mechanism is uh, well balanced already. In the dossier, which I'm familiar with, the fluorinated gases, there is a very clear mechanism of giving an exemption. So you get an exemption if there is no uh, working alternative or if uh, there is a real need to continue with the existing materials. You, know, you, 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 you get that exemption because we all are prudent people here. And, uh, nobody is, uh, is going to, you know, to, to, to ban something just for the sake of a banning. Yeah? But, but the, 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 the architecture is... Uh, very nicely designed, I should say. Yeah, it's a it's a praise for the uh, to the commission and to the all the co-legislators uh, for the <laughs> uh, from from previous decades. And uh, I think that uh, Europe essentially created this mechanism for the sake of its people. It's uh, clearly balancing the needs of the industry, of the of the of the environment, of people. And uh, I would say let's let's stick to the working uh, working model. Uh, exemptions are possible in the fluorinated gases case, and uh, there might be 
possibly many uh, calls for certain exemptions uh, until a very efficient working solution is found. Okay, uh, next question is to Florian. This question is from Anna Lundquist. Um, industry keeps claiming that fluoropolymers are polymers of low concern, but what official body has concluded this? To my knowledge, none. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a very good question. <clears throat> Basically, so what we know, or what I personally know, is the definition of the OECD. Uh, there has been an, uh, a paper, I think it's from 2009, if I recall it correctly, and there, there's given a definition of the so-called polymers of low concern. And basically, certain properties are there associated with uh, substances. For example, uh, persistency, as far as I recall, is one of them. Uh, also, it's the molecular weight, as far as I'm, I remember. So there is a definition out there. And um, if, if Anna needs, needs any link, probably I can provide that, that information to, to, uh, to Anna. Uh, I'd be rather happy. Uh, there's different understandings on polymers of low concern if you go for a broader definition. And yes, it's one of the famous arguments. If there are polymers of low concern, basically polymers of low concern, the definition exists. And these are polymers which are of low concern. So that means they're not harmful. They are degradable. They are not so persistent and they can be used and they are used in a different context in a different environment. So the definition exists. Um, probably taking the chance to go to some more details because uh, Jean-Luc and Martin and Kessis said like it's a differentiated and well-formed well approach. Actually, we are facing, so we, the industry, facing the restriction proposal, which is issued uh, beginning this January. And I can cite it even for you, even in few cells. It's in Annex E, the pages 410 and up to 425. And if you ask for, like, of, if the industry had a chance to contribute, actually we did. But for fuel cells in particular, um, that comments were disregarded. So even the issues of the NX, for example, write themselves that they say we can see large, huge socioeconomic in, uh, impacts on the European Union. We can see working labor wandering away, though this is something for SEAC to assess. And again, as we come from the RAC assessment or as we come from REACH, the only thing we have been challenged or faced with was a pollution curve how like the, 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 the emissions of PFAS, because it's under REACH regulations, are going up for the next extrapolated 20, uh, 20 to 50 years. So that's basically what, what, what you call differentiation. I would disagree with that. Give us the chance to look at it one by one. Yes, let's use also the definition of polymers of low concern. Let's not invent something new, but use existing definitions. And let's not only regard reach, but also regard what's the benefit of technologies. And let's balance it with the risk assessment to what's the harm of the technology or the substance. And as far as we can see from the industry, um, there is, we would like to partner here. It's probably a first proposal what we can see here, though we would like to, to be part of the proposal and also to give our proper input to the proposal. And we can't see that industry is properly represented in the proposal. Martin, you wanted to respond to that? Yeah, only very shortly uh, to reflect because <laughs> it was said, uh, mentioned several times that it is a well-balanced approach. What I said is that the system allows for a well-balanced approach. I did not preempt on this 
current restriction proposal, whether that one is well balanced. Therefore, I will wait for the, the opinions of ECA, just to make it very clear. But I think the system allows it, and it's good that uh, uh, Dr. Henkel Florian is involved, like other industries as well. But just to make very clear, uh, REACH allows for a well balanced uh, decision. And Jean Luc, you also wanted to comment. Um, yes, just to come in on the question of the polymers of low. Uh, concern. So indeed, there is a 2009, if I recall well, uh, report document by uh, the OECD, um, which talks about this, which, which explores those possibilities. Um, it is uh, a document that has not the highest uh, status of officiality, but it is indeed true that uh, that fluoropolymers, like most other polymers we, that come to our mind, uh, fall into uh, the class of polymers of low concern on basis of their molecular weight, on the basis of um, the absence of, uh, of functional groups that are reactive. So, of course, that is also the case here. Um, fluoropolymers are persistent. So, in that sense, they are a very classical uh, PFAS. That is the basis for their low concernness as, 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 as per the OECD uh, document. Um, but nevertheless, what, must, what mustn't be forgotten is that it's not because of that that it didn't present, present other concerns, be it during the life cycle, being, be it, for example, in, uh, in marine litter and so on. Those are characteristics that all polymers of so-called low concern uh, share. So this uh, concept of low concern has to be taken as it's just value which is uh, with a pinch of salt um, the whole life cycle is of uh, importance here so that that has to be looked at um, just to complement the uh, the information thanks okay so the next question here is from mark uh, this question is from elisa irpola from the chemical industry federation of finland question is, do we have data to assess which part of the PFAS in the environment are from fluoropolymer articles? There are t they, these are typically used in equipment in multiple sectors for safety and green transition, and they're hard to replace. Well, what, what we know, um, we already talked about uh, firefighting films. These are the typical hotspots on, on an international level. Um, uh, in Germany, we have also some issues, and I think that's also on a European level, with landfill materials coming from paper industry, so paper sludges, which are coated with um, certain precursors of um, uh, our prominent PFAS candidates. Um, not sure about um, the resilience, so to say, of uh, fluoropolymers in the environment. Um, if we say um, they degrade, we uh, of course have some, some monomers uh, which uh, have a certain PFAS functionality, but most of uh, the uh, known issues uh, are um, related um, uh, in the hotspots um, to the two examples I have given before. Okay, thanks. But as I said, I'm very, I'm just, just to say sorry uh, for him, um, but again, this is this is a, again a matter of science and a, a matter of evaluation of all, all the challenges. And uh, 
currently we only know of a couple of hotspots. Um, for sure, there are more environmental pollutions which might have an impact uh, uh, to, to, to humans as well as uh, to, to the whole environment, including animals and plants and, of course, agriculture. So um, I think there's a lot of work still um, before we can go to the next topic. Okay, thanks. So we have two questions that have come in for you, Martin, basically about the time frame here, what we're actually looking at, because as you mentioned, this is a bit of a complicated process involving multiple institutions. Uh, so first question from Elliot Warantz. Uh, will the essential use concept be published under the current commission's term, and will it be used to deal with the UPFAS restriction to address certain uses like medical devices or batteries? Second question is from Thomas Trevison. How likely is it that the definition adopted for PFAS in the PFAS restriction proposal by the five countries changes? I think I think the question is meant. So, how likely is it that that proposal from the five countries is what is actually going to come to the commission? Okay, so thank you. The first question was regarding the essential use discussion and the communication by the commission. Well, uh, the, the, I'm located at DG Chrome. Uh, SSU communication is part of DG Environment, and I'm not involved in that uh, publication, so I cannot answer. But I can answer on with respect to the universal PFAS restriction, because there, if you look to the dossier, essential use is not mentioned at all. And also, the current REACH legal text is not mentioning essential use. So also in the assessment, we will not touch it. And I see and I hear also Jean-Luc uh, uh, thinking that it would be a good idea. But I think from the commission side, we have to face what's on the table and what's in the current legal text. And there, as we explained, uh, we have to consider the risk, the availability of alternatives, the economic impacts, etc., which is, of course, related. So we will not touch uh, this essential use discussion in this file. It's also in the, the current REACH legislation. Uh, then uh, there was a second question from Thomas. Um, please remind me. <laughs> what, what how, likely, the... how likely is it that the, what has been proposed by the, yeah, the countries the... is what's going to come to the commission's desk? Yeah, the chem and I think he's referring to the chemical scope here. Uh, so which PFAS are covered by the restriction proposal? Because not the users. So what we have seen, uh, of course, with the firefighting foam dossier, it has the same chemical scope as uh, the file, uh, which it's now being discussed by uh, the agency. And that uh, scope, this broad chemical scope, covering most almost all PFAS as defined by the OECD in 2021. Uh, that one was agreed uh, by RAC and SEAC as a available uh, definition for the chemical scope. And as such, it has been brought to our table. So uh, I think we can assume that RAC and SEAC will consider the same, but of course, <laughs> to be uh, confirmed by the, the uh, committees. Okay, good. Thanks for that. Okay, so the next question here is for Florian. Uh, this is also from Anna Lenquist. Uh, there are, in fact, a number of companies pr producing PFAS-free fuel cells. Are you planning on using any of those innovations in your business? <clears throat> the, the, the question I would like to give back to Anna, please name us the companies and we would happily buy from them. 
So what I can report to you is um, we we not only annually, but even even on a three or five years uh, scale, of course, we do monitoring of different technologies. And first of all, what I what I want to want to want to offer you is, for example, there's for membranes, for fuel cell membranes, there's the option of hydrocarbons. As I said, hydrocarbons have been out there for, let's say, the last 30 years. And we have to be very, very careful if we are getting too excited on materials which are out there, that we are not like shooting up a balloon and saying like, here is the solution. Again, it's a, di a different story between a company offering a stamp size sample of some new materials and of having something industrialized, which you can use in a product which runs on our streets. You're driving that truck for 25,000 hours of operation. And it's also a different approach if that's your car you're driving a fuel cell with. Um, the question is, do you want to have an infant material being integrated into that car? Besides that, in automotive industry, even if we had the material today, if Anna gives me the contact and I can buy it today, even by regulation and certification, we are not able to bring that car or that truck onto the road in a time frame of five to eight years. So if you now give us a restriction, uh, a derogation time for, for six years, as, as Jean-Luc was issuing, basically, we will just stop tomorrow because we can't do it within that time. There's no chance. Coming back to electrolyzers, by the way, they don't have any derogation. Is everybody aware of that? So if we don't have a derogation for electrolyzers, there is no hydrogen production uh, in, in Europe within the time frame of the next three years. I don't know if everybody is aware of that. And I want to see the electrolyzer industry, if they are able to bring up a certified product which stands out there for 20, 30, 40,000 hours of operation with a PFAS-free, complete PFAS-free membrane environment, uh, sealing, lubricants, whatever is used in there, um, and that's being installed and production, uh, productionalized and industrialized within the next three years, that's just impossible. Sorry to say, it's not possible. Okay, so the next question we have is for Mark. Um, this question is from Chris Van Den Ida. Uh, with a general PFAS ban, the analytical instruments and also certain reagents, e.g. TFA, will no longer be operational unless alternatives are urgently found. Has your institute analyzed these consequences and did you identify any solutions? Uh, um I said Fraunhofer in Germany, um, just to, to to all of the listeners, is um, uh, doing um, applied science. So um, there are two aspects I want to 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 bring on the floor. Is even if we talk about replacements, we uh, still have to be sure that they are in terms of toxic toxicity better than than PFAS and um, also. Yeah, for the environment, for, for, for mankind, whatever you name it. The other one is that um, uh, if we talk about replacements, um, a couple of our institutes uh, coming from material science are available um, to, to support these, the, the, this action. But still, um, uh, we cannot, due to our financial 
digital system at Fraunhofer cannot do this on, on our own. It has to be supported um, by uh, governmental action or by, by industry action. But there are surely options to do so. But it's not a, a process which we can uh, uh, do on our own. Okay, next question is for Martin. So actually, Martin, I'm going to put one question I forgot to put to you before, which was about the timeline as well from Maskut. Very simple question. Uh, how will the EP elections and the new incoming commission impact on the timeline for addressing PFAS? Is this something we can expect in this term, or do we need to wait until the next term, particularly considering it is a bit politically sensitive? Uh, and then I'll put another question to you. This is from Carl Eric Portales. Uh, oh, Carl Eric is from the EPBA, the European Portable Battery Association. How viable is the rumored plan from Germany to only restrict 100 PFAS and not 10,000? This was leaked in a German newspaper recently. Okay. You said very easy questions, or? <laughs> um, no, so on, on the, the timelines, um, uh, I think there is a bit of a confusion there also with the mandate of the current commission. Uh, I think that's related to the REACH revision, which is, of course, also on the table, and that has been uh, stopped for the moment, so it will not be passing through in this commission. But for the PFAS restriction, uh, it does, does not influence this election. So we have a file which we have to assess, has go through the process and will come to the commission. And then we will see when it's on our desk. So it definitely will not be in this commission period because that's almost at the end. Uh, we have elections in June next year uh, and we will not receive the file before that one. So uh, I think the issue of the election is not for the, the PFAS file. We, we are assessing the dossier and it will come to our desk and then we will come up with a proposal. So I think that's fair enough. Uh, and on the leak in the German press, I didn't see it. So, uh, and I would say I cannot react on that one. In general, the commission does not comment on leaks, I know, in general. Um, let's go next to Mark. Another question for Mark. This is from Frederica Pischnik. Um, do you have an insight on possible links between the PFAS levels found in your probes and fire extinguishing foams or fire events in the areas of the probes? How likely is this link? Mm, okay. Yeah. As said, um, we know from, from various um, <clears throat> airports, for example, um, that there's a clear link uh, uh, if you look to groundwater, to drinking water in the area around airports, that this is um, this uh, firefighting forms which have to be tested, uh, of course, uh, on airports from time to time. And um, we also know that for a long, very long period, um, PFAS was used, um, different PFAS products. And as said, um, these chemicals stay in the soil. They are, yeah, somehow permanent, slightly permanent binder to, 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 to um, compartments in the soil, but um, still they are um, somehow um, bioavailable. So um, if we look really to firefighting farms, um, um, we um, can indicate that there are certain hotspots and, um, where um, these firefighting farms are tested in a, in a, in a broader sense. Uh, Jean-Luc, I know you wanted to come in on the question of counting PFAS. 
if, if if there is if there is time, uh, I'd just like to warn a bit about the tendency we uh, we have to 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 want to count PFAS. Uh, so either four thousand seven hundred, two thousand five hundred, ten thousand, or twelve thousand, it doesn't really matter. Um, I would say um, the, there is a question of where does one PFAS stump, where does the next one start? For example, when you get into polymers, that boundary is uh, is a bit uh, problematic. At the end of the day, of course, many PFAS are not industrial substances, so those may be banned, but if they anyway don't exist, um, then that ban has no implication uh, what, whatsoever. Also, of the seven um, earlier um, restriction proposals, not a single one was about one single substance. The minimum number was three, and most of them actually cover an uncounted number, but likely in the... Uh, in, in, in the range of 100, 200, possibly a couple of uh, a couple of hundred uh, compounds. So, um, and that's then in that case, case industrially relevant uh, ones or potentially relevant ones. So, um, just to say, counting PFAS is, I think, in many cases in this contact context, a waste of time. Okay, so not particularly concerned about this German leak. Um, Let's, so we are just about out of time. I think we have time for one more question. It'll be for Martin. I think it kind of nicely wraps up the topic of the discussion. It's also an interesting idea. Uh, this question is from Nicholas Belomo to Martin. Could a two-speed ban be envisaged? We're always talking about two-speed Europe these days. Um, so the idea would be that B2C PFAS would be banned, but PFAS used in the green transition could be given a five or ten years lead time before a complete ban. What would the Commission think about such an idea? I'm not sure if I entirely understand the idea, but I think what you see already in the proposal is that you have time-limited derogations and untime-limited derogations. Uh, so I think that is more or less linked to it. So I'm not sure uh, how this will change it, but I think certainly we need to consider uh, also, as explained by Florian very clearly, how can, if you are going to to a restriction, how do we give enough time to go to the substitution path? Uh, that industry has the opportunity to go to the other materials if they are there. I think that's a clear issue for the restriction for many applications. And for those time time limited derogations, the idea is that whether it's a something essential to the green transition or not, if it's an essential use, it has a derogation, is that right? The, in the current proposal, I don't see there is a differentiation between if it's a green transitional application or not. Uh, what you consider is if there are alternatives and if you're going to be able to substitute the material, yes or no. Right, so depending on whether those available alternatives are there. And of course, we know that's a very hot discussion about whether they're there. We've explored that a lot during this discussion today. I think a lot more to explore there, certainly as we move in the months ahead and, and as this moves forward in the process, as we explained, a bit of a complicated process, but eventually we'll see 
where we end up. I want to thank all of the panelists for some really interesting contributions here. I think what we've heard today is essentially there is agreement that PFAS can be risky, and I think everybody wants to see a phase-out of those PFAS that are dangerous and for which there are substitutes. I think that is a common area of agreement here. Uh, where some people are concerned is that it's for some PFAS being phased out too early, for which there are substitutes not available. Key question will be, are those substitutes available and are they viable, the key question we were talking about before. Lots to continue discussing here, but that's all the time we have for today. So again, I want to thank our panelists, and I want to thank you at home for sticking with us, and we apologize again for that uh, technical glitch halfway through there, but we look forward to seeing you here again for the next Your Active event. Have a great day.